This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time, and one way or another, we seem to get around to what it means to be human, and how through craft, that idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Keith O'Brien, author of the nonfiction book, Paradise Falls. Perhaps most alarming and most shocking, there's a legend in the neighborhood that children are finding rocks that spontaneously catch on fire. Fire rocks, the kids called them. And it, it sounds absurd. It sounds completely implausible, except, again, there's actual documentation of this. We'll be back with Keith O'Brien after these essential words. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. The episode you're about to tune into represents eight-plus years of dedication and perseverance for producing this show. In addition to conversations that go into depth about a writer's work and obsessions, This show and every interview it features aims to embody the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I invite you to join me in this journey as a First Draft patron, which gives you access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, and writing tips from my guests. You can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash First Draft Writers. Any amount is welcome, but for $6 a month, you receive thank you gifts on a monthly basis. Plus, when you donate to First Draft, you are joining the community of writers and readers who support conversations like the one you are about to hear. With your donation, you are saying yes to continuing the space of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection that each show reaches to achieve. You are the scaffolding that holds up this platform that shares the insights and challenges of the writing life. So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. And let's be honest, there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free but it is not without expense in hard costs and labor to make. Don't get me wrong, producing these interviews is indeed a labor of love, but there is an incredible amount of labor involved, time and effort, planning and schedule wrangling across time zones, from Colorado to New York to London to Tel Aviv to Auckland and back again. And it all adds up to the creation of this show and the archive, which has more than 300 episodes you can dive into. I put so much care and effort into this show, and I hope you can tell with every episode. The process begins when I select a book, contact the author, schedule the interview. Then I read the book, take notes, conduct research, have the conversation, and edit the show. This takes equipment, organization, more late nights than you can imagine, and a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition each week. And there is no staff. I am the show from start to finish. I know you may not be in front of a computer right now, so why not write a note on your hand or set the alarm on your phone to remind yourself to donate to First Draft when you get home? 
Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned at the end of this show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you for your support and for being here with me today, right now, in this moment, and on to the show. My guest today is nonfiction author and journalist Keith O'Brien. His books include Outside Shot, Fly Girls, and Paradise Falls. O'Brien's books have been New York Times bestsellers, and he has been a finalist for the Penn ESPN Award for Literary Sports Writing. His work has also been featured on NPR, Marketplace, This American Life, Here and Now, and Only a Game. He has written for the New York Times, the Washington Post, and Politico, among others. His new book, Paradise Falls, The True Story of an Environmental Catastrophe, focuses on a town just outside of Niagara Falls where a large employer in the area, Hooker Chemical, had been dumping toxic waste for more than 20 years. The area known as Love Canal represented the first widely known human-caused environmental crisis in the United States. When mothers in the neighborhood became aware of the health effects on their children, they organized and fought the state, the federal government, and the company that caused the wreckage, not just of their town, but of their lives. Eventually, the entire neighborhood was evacuated, but only after continuous fights from the people who lived there. We began the discussion with Keith O'Brien sharing what first intrigued him about Love Canal. So my last book, uh, which came out a few years ago, was called Fly Girls. And it was also narrative nonfiction history, uh, the story of um, female pilots in the 1920s and 30s fighting for the right to fly and race airplanes. It was really a story of Amelia Earhart and her friends. And of course, you know, when I wrote that book, all of those protagonists were long gone. Um, uh, but m- a few of them, a few of my main characters from that book had lived deep into the 1970s. And during the research and writing process of that book, I really um, mourned, and I think that's the, the best word, I, I really mourned that no one No reporter, no historian, no author, no podcaster. Of course, there weren't any back then, but no no storyteller had had found these women and and recorded any sort of meaningful interview with them about the lives they had lived. And and it was just this real hole that I, I felt existed there. And... So when I came out of that, uh, that book and came out of the writing of that book and started to look around at what I wanted to do next, I really started to think, Mitzi, like, what are the stories that are around us right now uh, where the protagonists are perhaps still alive, but maybe in their waning years, maybe in their 70s or 80s, and, and who had once done something meaningful, but also now have been sort of um, forgotten. And, and so because I was thinking about that, I really started thinking about the 1970s. And, you know, I do think the 1970s are, are a ripe historical time at this particular moment because, of course, uh, it is history at this point. It's 40 or 50 years ago. Um, and yet uh, some of the protagonists from the stories that dominated that decade are still alive. And so... For me, you know, I, I'm a child of the 80s, but I was born in the 70s. And I do have a few snippets of memories from that decade. You know, I remember uh, the blizzard of 1977. Um, I remember the gas lines and, and being in the back of my mother's station wagon as we waited in a long gas line. Um, I remember the Iran hostage crisis and wondering as a you know toddler, you know how how could the president not get these people home? And I remember this little sort of uh, place called Love Canal. And you know, like a lot of people now, uh, I didn't really know what that place was or even where it was, but I knew it was something dreadful. And so, you know, as I started to think about the '70s and 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 
topics that might be relevant today from that decade. You know, I gravitated initially to my own memories and, uh, you know, quickly started digging in on this story of Love Canal. So how much research did you do before you knew this was it? And was there a moment or a fact you found that clinched it for you? Initially, I tracked down uh, some of the mothers, uh, residents of the neighborhood who had um, learned about this chemical landfill in their neighborhood and then fought against it for the next two years in order to save their families, fought to escape their homes. So my initial work were was phone interviews with some of these uh some of these people and uh some of them were in their 70s some of them were in their 80s and it was pretty clear early on that there was a powerful uh, human story here you know i don't think you know you can go back to every you know um historical event and retell the story and have it be have it be relevant but i do think it was apparent very early on in these interviews that there was real relevance in this story today um you know because to me this isn't just a story of a of a neighborhood this isn't just a story uh of a of a long forgotten chemical landfill and this fight to escape their homes it's really a story of resistance and a story of ordinary people, working class people, who had no voice, who had um, um, no power, and in the span of two years, uh, went from being ignored by their local officials, their local school board, their local school superintendent, their local city council, to having the ear of the EPA, the White House, and, and indeed Jimmy Carter himself. And so... Once I started to see that through through interviews, I knew that there was something here, you know, a story that people could connect to today. And uh, and then and then I started making research trips, and I started going to the archives where some of these records are held. I um, ordered uh, from the federal repository about a dozen boxes of of court records that had been, um, you know, in storage for now many decades. And, you know, I started going to Western New York, I started going to Washington, DC, and I started going through these records. And, and once you do that, it's, it's, uh, it was plainly clear that this was a stunning story. Yeah, it's so interesting, because I think the words love canal, it causes some kind of reaction in people, but then I don't know if they can go further to really explain what it is. I grew up in Rochester, so I grew up an hour away. And so I also remember stories on the news and stories in the newspaper. I was probably around nine when a lot of it was happening. And I knew it was something bad. And I could probably tell you there was toxic waste involved, but that's kind of as much as I could tell you. Well, right. And, you know, and you know more than I think 90% of people. I think most people who are of a certain age recognize the phrase and they, they also know it was something sort of um, uh, something mysterious and something terrible, but they, but they don't really know uh, what it is. And, um, and, and, and for me as a writer, you know, who, who started pursuing this, I, I wanted to write it in that way. You know, this place, this this neighborhood now, and just on the outskirts of Niagara Falls, it's called Love Canal today, you know. But at the time, it was not called Love Canal because nobody knew there was this old canal beneath the neighborhood, and nobody knew—at least none of the regular folks knew—that uh, this canal had been systematically filled with chemical waste for about a decade. Um, they called this neighborhood LaSalle. Uh, you know, named after the the explorer who had first uh, ventured into Western New York, and and so I wanted to start my story, my narrative, before people started calling it Love Canal, and and sort of lay out that this was a, you know, a, a working class neighborhood, but a desirable place, uh, a, a tidy little grid of starter homes, uh, where. A lot of young families had moved in the 1960s and 70s uh, because these were homes that these families could afford on on their factory workers' wages. 
and 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 it was not only desirable because they could buy a home and and begin scraping their way to the middle class. They there was a school right in the heart of this neighborhood um, that you know we will come to learn was built right on top of this chemical landfill. And so I really wanted to start it before that and let those secrets sort of seep to the surface and 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 write it write it as it as it played out at the time, which was as a horrifying mystery. You know, imagine living in the homes we live in today and, you know, having little hints of problems, maybe for months, maybe for a few years, and then suddenly realize, you know, it's not, that smell isn't just from the factory down the street, it's from my yard. The general gist of the story, and we can talk about it a little bit maybe in in some chronological order, is that years ago in the the late 1800s, a man came in to build a canal. And we'll talk about how the canal got built and what happened because it never really got finished. And then this hooker chemical company came in and I think starting in the late 1950s started just dumping chemicals in barrels that weren't probably sealed properly at all. And all over town. I mean, the amount of chemicals is astonishing. And by the 70s, they were leaching. I mean, there were stories of people on the playground or people in their yards where things would spontaneously combust and go on fire. People's eyes were burning. The creeks, some of the creeks were bright orange and people started to really notice and say, what is going on? And your story kind of goes from there, from the 70s to how these women got together and fought the company that brought in the governor and Jimmy Carter and the EPA just to fight for their health. And there's a lot of sick people and it reads like a thriller. There's a lot of really interesting things. Uh, In the late 1890s, uh, uh, a man named William T. Love showed up in Western New York. He was uh, an entrepreneur and a bit of a drifter and a grifter. Uh, He had, um, he had, he had some, he had had some success over the years building businesses in various places, but he'd also had some incredible failures. And the thing about the 1890s was you could move from state to state or town to town and show up with your charisma and your know-how and claim to be just about anything you wanted. And William T. Love comes to Western New York in, in the, in the early 1890s. And he sets upon an idea, and it was an idea that others had had before him. He wanted to carve essentially uh, a shortcut or a, or, or a roundabout uh, around those iconic waterfalls in, in Niagara Falls. Uh, he wanted to divert the Niagara River upstream from those waterfalls, the waterfalls we all know, and um, uh, carve a canal that would go about 11 miles to a location beneath the falls. So if you were a small boat uh, or uh, any kind of um, traveler, you could travel by by river around uh, the falls to Lake Ontario and north to Canada uh, on William T. Love's Canal. Just as important, maybe even more so, Love would be able to create hydroelectric power, which was, you know, uh, the nascent uh, energy source of its day by, by, by this rushing water. And he had this grand plan to build a new city, his, quote, model city at the middle of this canal. Love makes it about a half a mile before it all falls apart. It was incredibly difficult to carve an 11-mile canal in the 1890s. Love's finances and background probably didn't help matters. And so for the next 50 years, essentially, there's a partially dug canal about six miles uh, uh, six miles east of the tourist district in Niagara Falls. And it's a watering hole. It's a place where kids sort of uh, go to swim. It's still pretty rural in those days. And in the 1940s, as you said, Hooker Chemical, uh, one of the largest employers in town, uh, one of the largest chemical manufacturers on the East Coast, uh, acquires this land and begins using the canal as a dump for its chemical waste and residue. And for about a decade, they they fill the canal uh, with these with these residues, and and these are residues that are uh, contained primarily 
and 55 gallon drums. Uh, and you know, these drums at times, uh, while they're buried, you know, eight to 25 feet beneath the surface of the ground, they're sort of buried helter skelter, you know, right on top of one another uh, with little apparent regard for the contents of one drum next to the other. And so it really is this sort of um, chemical stew that gets, that gets uh, planted in the ground there. And in 1952, uh, the city of Niagara Falls is growing. It's moving east, as a lot of cities were, uh, you know, in 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 the post-war years, the post-war boom years in America. Uh, you know, Niagara Falls is starting to grow, and it's pushing out to the outskirts of town, and it's pushing east to this place called LaSalle, and the place where this uh, canal is. And the Board of Education is looking for land. Uh, the City Board of Education is looking for land it can acquire to build a new school to accommodate all of these families who are moving to Niagara Falls, some of whom are moving in to work at Hooker Chemical. And uh, they reach out to Hooker to inquire about the canal, uh, which at that point is now, for the most part, filled in. It doesn't look like a water channel anymore. And um, initially, Hooker is hesitant. And I know this uh, from records, from records going back to the 1940s and 50s. Hooker is well aware of the contents it has put in the ground there. And initially, when the school reaches out to uh, the company asking about the land, in back and forth memos within the company, uh, they agree that this land is not suitable for a school and they're gonna have to say no. But over the course of just a month, in the spring of 1952, uh, the feelings and the tone begin to change inside Hooker. You know, at least uh, one executive notes in a memo that spring that this Love Canal property property is quote rapidly becoming a liability because of the encroaching homes and development that are getting closer and closer to the canal by the day, and so. With the Board of Education, they assess the land. The parties agree that it's safe, that they can cap this off, that they can cover what's there. And um, that fall, Hooker Chemical agrees to transfer the land to the Board of Education, uh, gifting it to the city for a dollar. And, and in this memo in which they agree to do this, they managed to sound magnanimous about it all, like they're doing everybody a favor. Um, you know, they, they say that the Board of Education has made a compelling case for more facilities and a hooker is happy to help in any proper way. It's really interesting, although this started in the 50s and you, you talked about how this expansion was going eastward and that you are really interested in the 70s. And the 70s, do seem like such an interesting time. It's it's almost where some kind of idea of maybe even like manifest destiny maybe rubs up against new laws being formed for like how we have to treat the land and that we actually can't just pollute and that our population is starting to really grow. And it does create this perfect kind of storm where this landscape of America cannot just hold on to us doing whatever we want because there's enough room to push it aside. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And, and, and I agree with that. You know, there's absolutely a reckoning that's happening in the 1970s, an environmental reckoning. And, you know, it's within this, this decade, you know, that we see, you know, the, the passage of the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act and the banning of, of such chemicals like DDT uh, and uh, the, the establishment of the EPA, you know, the actual formation of the Environmental Protection Agency, which, by the way, was Richard Nixon's doing, a, a Republican president. Uh, and so there is this little moment in time uh, that a lot of great reporting has been done around in, in, in contemporary newspapers these days, uh, where we were having an enlightenment. Uh, 
and we were we were doing right by the earth and trying to trying to correct so many mistakes we had made over the past uh, 80 years of 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 that industrial growth there's even a moment in time there where where we had a chance to to reckon with and 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 correct some of the the climate issues we're we're dealing with today that that we that we failed uh, to capitalize on. But there is this this moment in time where there is a reckoning happening. Problems are surfacing. Uh, government is dealing with them, and and yet this problem this problem in this neighborhood in Niagara Falls takes everybody by surprise including the people who live there. Um, even though, as you say, there had been hints from the beginning that there were going to be problems in this neighborhood. Uh, you know, it's, it's 1953 that Hooker transfers the land to the Board of Education. Uh, by 1955, the school is up and, and built and uh, children are attending right there on top of the landfill. Uh, homes are being built, people are moving in, roads are being built, crisscrossing this old canal, uh, unearthing uh, problems to start with. And it's almost immediately that there are reports of issues, fires that break out at, at the old canal, which is now you know the heart of the neighborhood. Drums, at, at least on one occasion, explode. Uh, children who report burning skin and burning eyes. And I think perhaps most alarming and most shocking, there's a legend in the neighborhood that children are finding rocks that spontaneously catch on fire. Fire rocks, the kids called them. And it, it sounds absurd, it sounds completely implausible, Except, again, there's actual documentation of this in two places. One, in the 1960s, a very, very small story runs in the Niagara Gazette where city officials warn residents of the LaSalle neighborhood that children who find rocks that might catch on fire should not play with them, but instead should submerge them in water. This is an actual directive that they gave to children, as, as if these children would actually pay attention to that. And, and secondly, the city informs Hooker uh, that, that there are these rocks that are, that are catching fire out there. And so these little problems are known, but it, it doesn't get the attention it deserves. It doesn't, it doesn't get the attention that it needs. And so life churns forward until the problems really begin to manifest in 1976, 1977. Yeah, and it's so hard to imagine that when the problems really come, and we'll talk about that next, how some people just weren't putting two and two together, um, but it was really new. So what begins really the next era of fighting this really started with some mothers who were really worried about their children, who were seeing what was happening on the schoolyard or seeing what was happening physically to their kids or their neighbors. At the heart of this is really this woman named Lois Gibbs, who is still alive today, which must have been really wonderful to not have to just look at documents, but to talk to someone. So can you talk a little bit about her journey and, and then how it intersected with lawmakers? Because there were some lawmakers like um, John LaFalse who were in on it from the very beginning, who, who did care. In 1976, some of these little problems start to become larger. Homeowners who live closest to the canal are reporting stenches that they haven't smelled before, uh, at times reporting leaching in their basement or yards. Uh, the blizzard of 1977, which dumps over the course of that winter, about 20 feet of snow in, in, in Western New York, complicates this issue even more. With the snow melt and the spring of, of 77, uh, imagine this old canal buried beneath the ground sort of filling like a bathtub. And chemicals really start to leach out. People are reporting chemical stenches and chemicals leaching out like never before. And it's over the course of 77 that John LaFalse, the congressman for that district, and his, uh, just as important, in fact, his uh, young congressional aide by the name of Bonnie Casper, uh, begin to investigate the issue. But initially, it remains something that's known 
in political circles. It's known now in Albany in the health department. It's known now in John LaFalse's office. It's starting to creep into the newspaper. And in the early winter, uh, or excuse me, late winter of 1978, so almost the spring of 78, uh, an article gets published in the Niagara Gazette uh, that catches the attention of Lois Gibbs. Uh, Lois Gibbs at the time is 27 years old. Uh, she's a mother of two, uh, a factory worker's wife who lives on 101st Street, about two blocks from the old canal, who just barely graduated from high school. Uh, Lois was very self-conscious about how she sounded when she talked, about, uh, about her own intelligence. Uh, she was so self-conscious, in fact, that she was the kind of woman who did not even speak up at PTA meetings. But when she reads these initial articles in the Gazette about this old canal beneath the school, uh, she starts to do what lots of parents do. She starts to connect issues in her life to issues in the world. Previous fall, her oldest son, Michael, had started attending kindergarten at this school. And at the time, Michael was a very healthy boy. But within just a few months of attending school there, Michael Gibbs starts suffering from seizures. And Lois instantly thinks, could it be possible that the chemicals buried in the ground beneath this school that are now, according to my neighbors, uh, leaching out in ways like never before, be connected to the problems that my son just started having within the past few months after he started attending school there. And, uh, you know, Lois does at that point what a lot of parents would do. She goes to the schools and she goes specifically to the school superintendent and she asks, places a request. And the request is, could they move Michael, her son, to another school in the upcoming fall? Uh, so essentially, could he attend first grade somewhere else? And the schools deny this request because they believe the school is completely safe as it is. And, you know, it's fascinating to think how history might be different if they had satisfied this request. But when they don't, Lois becomes angry and uh, she decides to start going door to door in her neighborhood, uh, collecting names on a petition uh, that she plans to present to school officials or somebody uh, asking for them to shut down the school until they can learn more. And Lois gets about 161 signatures on this petition, and she uh, is ready to present it to officials when uh, a stunning announcement is handed down from Albany in the summer of 1978. And that announcement is, according to the state now, there is a problem in the neighborhood and they are recommending, and that's their first decision, recommending that about 200 families that live closest to this old canal move. And you know, this detonates like a bomb within this neighborhood of roughly, uh, you know, 4,000 um, 4, people, uh, roughly 1,000 families. And, uh, and, 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 and suddenly uh, a story that was small um, is a national one. And it really just explodes from there because then it's these lawmakers coming to visit and the... New York State Department of Public Health doing research and chemical testing, and then it becomes completely political. Some of the hardest things to understand, and, you know, as you said earlier, the EPA was new. At the same time, inflation is happening, and Jimmy Carter's financial advisors are saying, you know, the environment has to help with inflation, too. What are you going to give up, basically, to help with this, this cause? I, the political pressure was really strong when it seemed like, you know, two and two has to make four. Like when you look at how, why these kids are getting sick. I'm wondering if you can talk just a little bit about the State Department of Health, which I found really interesting, which is eventually led by David Axelrod, who denied some of that proof. Just as with our public health crisis today. There are differing views about how to handle it, uh, differing views about you know, what is safe, or I guess to be more direct, how much risk are we willing to assume? 
I mean, that's, that's the question that we've been wrestling with now for the last two plus years uh, with this current pandemic with COVID-19. And that was a question that state health officials and residents and federal health officials and the EPA were all asking themselves in the months leading up to the initial evacuation orders uh, of the neighborhood in Niagara Falls and, and for the two years after, how much risk can we assume here? And David Axelrod was a medical doctor uh, and was incredibly smart, a brilliant man who had gone to Harvard and uh, had a, a great grasp of things from anything from you know lead poisoning to to cancer and he's appointed health commissioner in the state of new york because he has this uh, scientific background this brilliant mindset but also because as it's noted at the time he understands the politics and the fact of the matter is hugh carey the governor of new york in 1978 was not only running for re-election in New York, he had White House aspirations. And you know, Hugh Carey wanted uh, to, to solve the problem as best he could in Niagara Falls, uh, but he also wanted it to go away as quickly as possible. And uh, with the state spending as little money as possible. And so, you know, a difference of opinion uh, begins to to take place in 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 New York and in Niagara Falls about what is safe, what amount of risk can you assume, and the fact of the matter is both then and really now, nobody knew where to draw the line. Where did the chemical uh, contamination start, and and where did it stop? At what point uh, was it safe? And, and that was a question that, that people could not agree on for lots of reasons, both scientific, political, and financial. But to think about it from the perspective of a homeowner or a resident of the neighborhood, if you were living on 101st Street and the state opted to evacuate and relocate people living on 99th and 100th Street, and now your, your lifetime investment your home is uh, looking out onto uh, a, a wasteland, essentially, of two entire streets that have been evacuated, you would not want to live there any longer. At a minimum, your home is now essentially worthless, and you're trapped living on the edge of, uh, of a disaster zone. But more worrisome to parents was that your home was worthless, you were living on the edge of a disaster zone, and your home was dangerous. And so, of course, wherever they drew the line, as the, and the line did change multiple times over the course of the next two years, it was an unsatisfactory answer to the people who were still trapped there. And as the story goes on, we learn, we meet characters like Beverly Pagin, who is a researcher, or she researches for a state agency, and, and she gets really discriminated against for working on behalf of the homeowners. We see a hostage crisis. We meet a woman named Luella Kenny, whose son dies um, from some kidney issues from the chemicals, although no one's really willing to say why he died. And it becomes like this thriller and I'm wondering as a writer, when you get, you know, two huge boxes of documents, you can talk to some people who are alive, but not everybody. You're looking at the at the political situation overall in the 70s. You're talking about everything all the way up to the president. How do you even begin to sit down and structure a book and know where you want to put in what chapter? Yeah. And uh, yeah. And I want to say it was more than just two huge boxes of documents. I mean, just from uh, freedom of information requests alone, I received uh, over a thousand uh, documents that had never been seen before. So, I mean, we're talking about from just the things that I ultimately had, you know, tens of thousands of pages of documents, uh, you know, over a hundred of hours of interviews with people who lived it. And yeah, structure is everything, you know, um, 
I often tell young writers or aspiring writers that your your story is like a house and and you're the architect, you're the builder. And if you don't have a foundation, i.e. you don't have a structure, uh, it's, the thing is going to fall in the end. And so I, I outlined something roughly. Um, I had a general sense of, uh, of, of where I was going. More importantly, I knew where the story started and where the story ended. And I knew who my most important characters were. And so knowing the start and the end and knowing your important characters and knowing the arc is key. And at that point, it's all about uh, decision-making. It's all about choices. And uh, also, Mitzi, it's about being uh, willing to ruthlessly cut uh, the things you just wrote. And so I, I probably, at, uh, by the end of this uh, draft, had cut a good 40,000 words out of the book. Uh, and just to give you know, listeners perspective, uh, this, this book is about 115,000 words. That's a little bit larger than the average book. The average book is about 100,000 words. So cutting 40,000 words is, you know, cutting is essentially like cutting 40% of a book, but that's what you need to do, you know, in order to get to the heart of your narrative, you need to be willing to, to say, boy, I really love this passage here, or I really want to include this little anecdote, because I found that one document and that document was so fascinating. But you also have to be willing to just, just cut it right out. uh, Because in the end, it's it's taking readers away from that from that narrative that's propelling them forward. How much of that process for you is instinct versus experience versus maybe an impartial person just coming in and saying, "Get rid of it." It's all of that. My process will be to to write for my day, and the next day I will start by rereading what I wrote the day before, and even having that. 24 hours or 12 hours of distance can help you see certain things that are not necessary. And, and then I'll do the same thing at the end of every chapter. So if you finish a chapter, um, I'll step back from it then and reread the whole thing. And I'll often make my own cuts then too. But also key is having uh, people or a person or two that you can share these chapters with when they're still very rough. And, 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 and I don't share them with folks just as a one chapter standalone. You know, when I do share things like that with some trusted readers of mine, um, I will often share like 12 chapters. So they all stand together. And, uh, you know, it's great to have someone who will read that for you and then just tell you things like this chapter is too long. Uh, I, I really love this chapter but it's too long or, Hey, actually, I think this could work without it completely. And just having people who are willing to tell you, um, tell you brutally honest, uh, uh, comments, uh, is incredibly helpful. Do you map any of it out visually? Cause you had so many characters. Visually like on a, like on a wall, you mean on or on a board? Yes. Not exactly. Uh, you know, again, I knew from the start that these are my five primary characters. These are the five people who are going to drive it forward. Uh, are there other names that float in and out of here at times? Absolutely. But when they do, um, I don't need to give everybody their, their backstory. You know, it's just a neighbor or it's the other congressman or whatever. Um, and, so no, I didn't have a board uh, for for this book laying out uh, my characters. I, I knew my characters, and 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 I want to go back to like I said before that I knew where the story started. I where I knew where the story ended, and by that I mean, you know, I knew the exact ending of the book, uh, the exact scene I would end with um, from the from the time I put. Um, pen to paper here, effectively. Uh, I knew where that would end. But also, as I approach a chapter, I know where the chapter begins, and I know where the chapter ends. And I know what are the key beats that I got to hit in that chapter. And I often know 
where the sections will end within a chapter, those little section breaks. Uh, because again, for me anyway, if I don't know where it ends, then I don't really know what I'm writing towards. So, um, you know, when I'm writing, you know, I have that, you know, finish line way, way in the distance where I know the book is going to end. But I also know where the section is going to end that I hope to finish today and where the chapter is going to end that I hope to finish by Monday. Why do you do it? You know, it's like, why, do, why does anyone take up art, you know, when you got all those thousand documents? I mean, you could have just said, you know, I'm going to start a restaurant or, you know, what do you maybe what do you hope that people get out of it? Because there's part of writing that's just like a singular challenge for us individually. But then we put it out in the world. Yeah, I mean, it's it's, uh, you know, I guess I don't start a restaurant because I probably wouldn't be very good at that. Uh, you know, I. You know, I guess I've been fortunate enough to to find something that I love and something that I'm able to do. Uh, and and I guess the simple answer to your question is is nothing makes me feel like I do when I'm researching and writing. You know, the, and there are the, the, there's sort of two um, two separate acts that are are in you know inherently connected. Uh, you know, there's, there is, there is joy and, uh, and, and, and the hard work often, um, uh, you know, relentless work that it takes to, to dig up the documents you need to, to, to do this kind of work. But when you find it, when you find what you're looking for, uh, it's, it's, it's like discovering a new world. Um, and then, you know, the writing of it too. Uh, as hard as it is and as dark as it is at times when you're in that that deep, uh, dark forest trying to find your way out of your narrative uh, is 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 really fulfilling. I mean, there's nothing like um, sort of sticking that landing at the end of a chapter and knowing that uh, and, and knowing in your gut that that it's good and that that there's no way a reader could finish the chapter you just wrote and, and, and close that book. They would, they would absolutely want to go on. And I want to be clear, you don't always feel that way. And it might take a long time for you to feel that way, but other times you do finish that chapter and you do feel that way. And there, there is really, um, for me anyway, nothing like that. It's so nice to hear that in a way, because I think we, as humans, you know, we want to serve the world, maybe some people, some people don't. And, but we also want to feel that joy to feel like that when we're doing what we're really called to do, that it's almost like a cellular level, um, harmony between what we're doing and that we feel the most alive doing it. And I mean, I, hopefully we all find that again, whether it's, whether it's running a restaurant or a small shop or, being a landscaper or being a nurse or being the eighth grade science teacher, you know, I think all of us have trials and tribulations within our work. Every single one of us has ups and downs and low point, low points. And, and I know writers in particular, myself included have tons of doubt. Uh, but, you know, when you are, when you are doing your work and you're doing it, you know, well, I think we all feel that way, hopefully. And so now that it's out in the world, like, how do you hope it lands? What do you hope happens that when it has its life of its own? There are people in this story, multiple people, who, whose names you do not know, uh, that most people do not know. And for a little window of time in the 1970s, they gave everything to um, to help themselves, to help their neighbors, to uh, to call out injustice, to stand up for what was right, to stand up to power. Some of them in that little window of time lost everything. Others would pay a great personal price for the decisions they made for themselves and others. And I do feel, you know, deep inside of me that that they need to be known, you know, that they need to be recognized for that. 
And so, you know, I, I hope that, that people find the book, A, <laughs> that people read it, of course. I hope they, I hope, I hope they, that those things happen because that in and of itself is, is of course, difficult. But when they do, I, I hope they see a little bit of themselves in these characters and look at the world around them and wonder, you know, what, what could I do? You know, what can I do w- with the world that I'm living in now? And um, before I get to the final questions, just in terms of the land now, you know, eventually it was evacuated like a whole swath. I mean, not just two streets. Everybody left. It just became dead. Um, what? Where is it now? So obviously, over the course of my research, I visited the neighborhood. As you enter this neighborhood on the east side of Niagara Falls, initially it looks like anywhere else on that part of town or anywhere else on the edge of a, of a large uh, mid-sized, let's say, urban community. On the western edge of the community, the homes uh, still stand. And decisions were made uh, by the state of New York in the late 1980s uh, to, uh, to resell and, and um, uh, allow people to resettle in these zones on the west and northern edges of the old canal. But the canal itself, uh, this 16-acre rectangular plot upon which uh, this school had once stood, is uh, fenced off from the world. You, you, cannot, you cannot go there. And everything east of the canal, old canal, including uh, the, ho- the, the home where Lois Gibbs once lived and the street where she once lived, is completely abandoned. It is. It feels truly like uh, an American wasteland. Um, the streets are still there, but they are uh, they are untended to. Uh, they are cracked and and falling apart. Um, uh, shrubs and trees that still exist have completely overgrown or fallen. Uh, the few homes that people refused to leave in the late 1970s or early 1980s are still standing there now as just uh, collapsing ramshackles. Uh, and, and people often use these streets as a dumping ground. Uh, you know, they, they dump old furniture there, you know, uh, trash, uh, busted cars. And, and so it is a, a stunning sight to see. Uh, but w- more worrisome really is, is, is these homes, uh, are these homes that the state chose to resettle in the 1980s, um, they were very affordable, as you might imagine, to, to purchase and, and still are, uh, by today's standards, affordable places to live. But some people who have moved into these homes where, where folks once lived near this old canal are also now reporting problems. Uh, chemicals in their basement, uh, health problems with their children. And uh, there's a whole new litany of lawsuits that are still related to this place called Love Canal. I mean, it's just such a a sad statement that in order to find a place to live that you can afford, this is what you have to trade. It's not okay. I saw, you know, I'm, I'm uh, part of these uh, Facebook groups that include people who either used to live in Love Canal or used to live in Niagara Falls. And just recently, I mean, just in the last 10 days, a, a woman posted in one of these forums and she said, uh, we have an opportunity. Our family has an opportunity to purchase, uh, you know, one of these little homes on one of these streets that have been, been resettled. And her question was simple. She said, is it, is it safe? I'm, I'm worried. And, <laughs> you know, um, Perhaps not surprisingly, uh, you know, she got a, a, a bunch of different opinions about whether it was safe or not. You know, people who used to live there weighed in and said, absolutely, do not move there. Do not do that to your family. And other people who, who have moved back said it's completely fine. And so, you know, all these years later, you know, four decades later, uh, here we are still with this neighborhood in Niagara Falls, uh, with a difference of opinion about, you know, how much risk is one willing to assume. Can you read a passage from an author that influenced you as a writer? 
Yes. So there are so many that I could read from, um, but I do keep here on my desk uh, and several books that are um, important to me that shape me in some way. And the one I'm going to read to read from here today uh, was just recently in the news. Uh, uh, this book is by Alfred Lansing. And it's called The Endurance, uh, Shackleton's Incredible Voyage. As some of your listeners will know, uh, they recently found this ship, The Endurance, um, at the bottom of the ocean uh, down near Antarctica. These are the opening three paragraphs of, of this book about this uh, this uh, doomed voyage by Ernest Shackleton uh, to, to, to the Antarctic. The order to abandon ship was given at 5 p.m. For most of the men, however, no order was needed because by then everybody knew that the ship was done and that it was time to give up trying to save her. There was no show of fear or even apprehension. They had fought unceasingly for three days and they had lost. They accepted their defeat almost apathetically. They were simply too tired to care. Frank Wilde, the second in command, made his way forward along the buckling deck to the crew's quarters. There, two seamen, Walter Howell and William Blakewell, were lying in the lower bunks. Both were very nearly exhausted from almost three days at the pumps, yet they were unable to sleep because of the sounds the ship was making. She was being crushed. Not all at once, but slowly, a little at a time. The pressure of 10 million tons of ice was driving in against her sides. And dying as she was, she cried in agony. Her frames and planking, her immense timbers, many of them almost a foot thick, screamed as the killing pressure mounted. And when her timbers could no longer stand the strain, they broke with a report like artillery fire. Do you want to say anything more about why you chose that? I chose that because of the specificity of the prose. You're, you're taught you know, in journalism school, or if you're like me and didn't go to journalism school, you're taught as a young reporter, a young writer, nonfiction writer, um, uh, don't, don't tell me, show me. Uh, and, 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 and by that, it means you know, use the language um, you need to, to actually show people what is happening and not tell them what is happening. And just, you know, there's simply no spare words here. There's no loose words here. There's no word you would want to cut. It's just um, direct and to the point and yet so stark and beautiful and stunning. Um, you're three paragraphs in, and I would dare anybody at that point to put this book down. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. I can. I mean, listen, every, everything, uh, everything changed uh, in this book here in Paradise Falls. Uh, you know, as I said, uh, you know, uh, I was editing all along and editing uh, to the end. Um, but this, uh, what I'm going to read to you here is the, the opening paragraphs of the book. Uh, because again, I, I feel like uh, it, the opening is so important. Uh, and so as a writer, I labor over the beginnings and the endings of chapters, sections uh, more than anything else. And so these, this is the first few paragraphs of the book. It's, it's essentially a, a prelude. Uh, we open on May 14th, 1972. And just for perspective, this is about uh, five years before the problems in this neighborhood will become apparent. So May 14th, 1972. It was a Sunday afternoon, almost summer in Niagara Falls, and the children from the little bungalows on the east side of town scampered outside to play. The parents, mostly factory workers and housewives, didn't follow them. No adults were going to lord over the kids with rules and warnings that afternoon because everyone knew the LaSalle neighborhood was safe and everyone knew where the kids were going, to the playground, they called it, a rectangular expanse of open land around the elementary school between 97th and 99th streets in the heart of the neighborhood. There were some play structures there, a swing set, a slide, and a baseball diamond too. 
but mostly the grounds were wild. Nearly 16 acres of grassland growing in clumps, untended and untamed. Parents sometimes wondered why no one had developed the property, dropped in among the tidy rows of single-story starter homes. It seemed as if someone should have built a real park there years ago. But the children asked no questions, because for them, the land was perfect. The vacant lot to end all lots, a place filled with possibility and maybe even magic. The older boys straddling their dirt bikes and tight shorts and white tube socks told fantastic tales of rocks at the playground that burst into, into flames that spontaneously combusted. They said they had seen it with their own eyes. Debbie Gallo, 11 years old with dark hair and hazel eyes, wasn't sure what to believe about the fire rocks. Her father was a welder, a son of Italian immigrants and a Korean war veteran who walked with a limp from the shrapnel he, that had carved up one of his knees. The Gallows felt fortunate just to own a home in the neighborhood and Debbie felt lucky that it was this one on 97th Street. Her little one-story house with olive green shutters looked right out over the school and the empty land. She could be on the playground almost before the front door slammed behind her, skipping across the street to the open lot. On weekdays, it meant that she didn't have to walk far to get to her fifth grade class at the school. On weekends, it meant that her front yard seemed to stretch on like the sea forever, with friends floating everywhere, coming and going on roller skates and bicycles. This Sunday was one of those days. So Debbie laced up her shoes and headed outside. Tell me more about that one. So we talked about all of the records, all of the documents that I unearthed here for this book. I did not know Debbie Gallo. Um, you know, she was not uh, a prominent character who was on my radar. Um, I'd never heard of her name at all. Even most people who had lived in this neighborhood at this time had not. Um, but as part of the records that I, I retrieved from the federal repository, uh, the federal court records, there were um, dozens of, of records going back to the 50s, 60s, and 70s that listed these early complaints, these early problems that had um, presaged this much bigger problem in this neighborhood. And one of these records, was uh, a handful of internal memos going back and forth in May 1972 about a little girl named Debbie Gallo who uh, had gone to the playground on Sunday, May 14th and gotten some kind of rock in her eyes that caused her to at least momentarily go blind. You know, in all of the records I found, this was just a stunning uh, scene, a stunning moment. And so, uh, you know, it, it took a while to figure out where I wanted to start and how I wanted to start this narrative. Um, but I decided upon Debbie. And again, not just relying on these uh, records, these memos from May 1972, uh, I went in search of her and her family and other people who are mentioned in these memos in order to rebuild this scene. Where do you write? I write right here uh, in, in, my, in my home office. Um, it's on the first floor of my house. I write here as much as I can. Uh, during this project, I, I had to write here almost strictly. Obviously, libraries were closed. Archives were closed. Um, you know, in, in the past, there have been times where I do vacate my house uh, because, you know, my family lives here. My wife lives here. I have two children under the age of 14. Uh, there's a lot going on here at times. And so sometimes I do decamp to, to a library and, I, and, I'll, and, I'll, and I'll write there. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? When you're in the midst of writing, I feel like you have to stay in it uh, uh, because, you know, I have certain deadlines that I want to meet either uh, that have been set by others or been set by me. So when I'm really writing and I'm really meeting those deadlines, I, I, I try not to escape it. But if I need that moment in the day to sort of reboot, uh, I just walk the dogs because they need a walk anyway. <laughs> Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? My wife is my first editor every single time. And uh, 
I have a couple of other close friends uh, uh, who 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 are who are right behind them, and their advice is uh, invaluable to me. How have you dealt with rejection? There's only one way to deal with rejection if you plan to make it in this in this field or frankly in any other competitive field. Uh, you have to learn from it and you have to push through it and you cannot take it personally. What is your favorite word? Oh my gosh. There's so many amazing words. My favorite word is dubious. Thank you so much for your time. I'm so grateful. Thank you. Thank you, Mitzi. Thanks for having me. It was my pleasure. If you like today's show with Keith O'Brien, author of the nonfiction book, Paradise Falls, check out my interview with David Gran on his book, Killers of the Flower Moon, which tells the story of the mysterious murders of members of the Osage Nation in 1920s Oklahoma. At the time, they were the richest people per capita due to oil reserves on their land. As they were systematically being murdered, the fledgling FBI entered the scene with the help of a former Texas Ranger to investigate the case. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 350 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts on keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Jeffrey Yang and Jacinda Townsend. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.